We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. If you have a Bible, if you will open to 1 Timothy chapter 2, we are continuing our series in 1 Timothy about the household of God, and we will be in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. This is what Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. Therefore, I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Also, the women are to dress themselves in modest clothing, with decency and good sense, not with elaborate hairstyles, gold, pearls, or expensive apparel, but with good works, as is proper for women who profess to worship God. A woman is to learn quietly with full submission. I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Instead, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. But she will be saved through childbearing. If they continue in faith, love, and holiness with good sense. Let us pray before we jump into this text. Father, we thank you that your word is good, your precepts are true, and we pray as we study this text together, as we hear your will for us, that we would rejoice in the plan that you have for us. Thank you that your word continues to speak to us in all generations, and that it confronts us and it encourages us. Thank you most of all for Jesus Christ who loves us unconditionally, who died for our sins, and he now accepts us fully. Father, we thank you for his blood. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you heard, the text today is a controversial passage. It's the most controversial passage in 1 Timothy, and you could argue it's the most controversial passage in all the Bible. In it, we read that women are to learn quietly with all submissiveness, and they are not to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, they are to remain quiet. So to begin, I want to say some things about how to approach this text, kind of set up the text. Then I want to walk very carefully through the text. I'm going to go line by line, verse by verse, and try to explain what it does mean, what it doesn't mean, and try to apply it to us, and then finally turn to some application. I must admit, I tried to shorten this sermon. It didn't work. (laughs) We might be here a while. I promise to get you out by the time the Chiefs play next week in the Super Bowl. (laughs) But thankfully, it's a little cold in here, and so hopefully you can stay awake for this. So, a few comments just to begin as we approach this text. First, we need to approach this text with humility and confidence. Humility and confidence for three reasons. First, we can acknowledge that the church and society has not always treated females as they ought to. Some have read these verses and concluded that women 
should not speak in church at all, that women should not be involved in ministry in any form, or even that women are lesser than men. Maybe you as a female here work in a male-dominated space, and you regularly sing the tune of Taylor Swift, I have to sneak her into every sermon. I'm so sick of running as fast as I can, wondering if I could get there quicker if I were a man, because if I was a man, I'd be the man. But as a female, you are paid less, listened to less, generally overlooked. And so all these factors make me think we need to approach this text with humility. Second, we want to approach this text with humility because maybe some of you experienced or heard experiences of abuse based on this text. Maybe based on this text, men have shut you down, demeaned you, or said things that were not fitting. And because of these reasons, these verses, these exact verses actually bring up a lot of emotions in you. And you wonder, how can this be in the Bible? And how can this be good when I've seen it turn to evil? And I, I don't want to brush over those experiences. I don't want to sweep those under the rug and, and just assume that they don't happen. We must face that reality And if we have misapplied these texts, if others have misapplied these texts, we need to repent. God will repay those who twist his good intentions. And people can twist the good intentions of God. We are not perfect. The church is not perfect. And you might have been hurt by the church because of these verses. And I want to say, I'm so sorry. That was not God's intention. So we need to approach this text with humility. Third, the third reason we need to approach it with humility is because Christians, they disagree about this text. There are two approaches to this text. One view is what people call the egalitarian view. Egalitarians believe the Bible liberates women and opens every role for them in the church. 1 Timothy 2, the text we just read, only applies to the unique situation in Ephesus. So it doesn't apply to everyone at all times. No, that was unique to Ephesus. That's the egalitarian view. Complementarians, on the other hand, are named such because they also believe that all people are equal, but that the Bible advocates for complementary roles for men and women in the church. 1 Timothy 2 is based on God's good design and creation and applies to all churches everywhere, not just the church in Ephesus from 1 Timothy 2. Our church in this teaching will be complementarian. However, I have many Bible-believing, God-honoring Christian friends who read the text differently than I do. Here's the deal. I think I'm right and they're wrong. But we can still be friends. But we should just recognize there are different interpretations of this text. So we should approach it with humility. But we should also approach this text with confidence. We should approach this text with confidence for three reasons. First... Because God's word and God's design is good and beautiful. Psalm 19 says, The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. In other words, the psalmist is saying the commands of the Lord are good. They are beautiful. There's something to rejoice in. There's something to lean into. When we read these verses I even noticed in this room, it got really quiet. We might cringe a little bit when we read these verses. This sounds so out of date. Are you trying to bring us back to leave it to beaver days? Or what what are you trying to do here? 
But the scriptures say God's command, God's commands are for our flourishing. They're for our good. I worked at a seminary once where someone said, if I had it my way, these verses would not be in the Bible. He was admitting it was hard for him to believe these verses were good. If I had to write the Bible, he's saying, I wouldn't put these in here. Another friend said to him, in all kindness, have you repented of that? His point was to push him towards total trust in God and his design for us. Even if we have questions about this text, and I know, even after this sermon, you're going to have questions about this text. That's okay to have questions. But we must approach it with trust, believing that our God is good, and he gives us good commands. Second, I have confidence because God's word is clear. Though I mentioned Christians disagree about this text, there has largely been uniform interpretation of this text down through the centuries. While we want to be humble that we can make interpretive mistakes, I might say things up here that are not totally in accord with the scriptures. I hope not. We can make those mistakes. The existence of different interpretations doesn't mean we don't know what it means. I think these verses are largely clear. And if you make these verses say the opposite of what they actually say, you have to wonder, are we beginning to mold the scriptures in our own image? Are we being molded to the scriptures themselves? Finally, I have confidence because the scriptures exist. They exist to do more than this, but they exist to correct us. They exist to correct us. 1 Timothy 3.16, a very famous verse says, All scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, and for what? Correction. When he says correction, who is he looking at? He's not looking at the world. He's looking at the church. Christians, you realize this is weird. You come in here every Sunday to be corrected. Christians are weird people. We come in here and we actually submit ourselves to correction from the scriptures. The scriptures have a way of leaning on us and letting us know when we have been discipled more by the world than by the scriptures themselves. And this is the type of text that confronts us smack in the face with the question. Are you taking your cues from the world? Are you taking your cues from the Bible? So we should approach this text with humility and with confidence, knowing that God's word is good. Okay, I have other intro comments. Three more intro comments before we jump into the text. First, we need to also remember that while the point of this text is different roles between males and females in the church. It's really important also to start where the Bible starts. This is not the only text in the Bible about the role of men and women. As Jen Wilkin has pointed out in Genesis 1, it begins not with the differences between males and females, but the sameness of males and females. The man has the animals paraded before him. Adam has the animals paraded before him. And he says, not like me, not like me, not like me. And then the woman is created and he says, like me. She is like me. At last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. So often when we come to texts where we talk about the relationships between males and females, we think difference. The Bible says, no, start with sameness, and then you can get to difference. Actually, we can only talk about difference because there is sameness first. 
So while this text is about different roles in the church, we have to remember we are both created, male and female. We are humanity together. Second, we should remember this is not the only text in the Bible on this topic. God values women in ministry. Think of Deborah, Miriam, Huldah, Anna, Philip's daughters. They all prophesy in the Bible. They all lead something in the Bible. Jesus had female followers. Many of Paul's companions in ministry are women, as can be seen from Romans 16. Just go through the list and point out all the women. Paul had a ton of females who helped him in the ministry. Priscilla takes Apollos aside in Acts and instructs him. Phoebe is a deacon in the church. Junia seems to have been close to the apostles. Euodia and Syntyche were fellow workers of Paul. Maybe most importantly, without the faithfulness of Tamar, Ruth, and Mary, the line of the Messiah would have been broken. The Bible is a story of God employing women for kingdom ends and lifting them up and using them for his own purposes. So if you walk out of this text and you think, gosh, God doesn't even want to use women. You're just not reading the whole Bible. You need to read the whole Bible together. This is one text amongst many texts. But third, while this is not the only text in the Bible on this topic, it is an important one. It is an important one. Either we err in only looking at this text, or we demote this text because we don't like what it says. And while the other texts are helpful, they are narratives, and here we have Specific commands. Specific commands from Paul. Additionally, I think we can bring all these texts together and affirm that the Bible lifts up women, gives them value, includes them in ministry, and says there are differences between how men and women should interact in the church. Okay, so that's all of my intro comments. Let's get to the context here. Let's turn to the text, and let me just set the main point and the context In 1 Timothy, we read that Paul sent Timothy to Ephesus to put things in order, to confront false teaching, to teach people how to behave in the church of God. Chapter 1 is about Timothy's commission. Chapters 2 and 3 concern how they can live faithfully in the church as a community together in contrast to the false teaching. What are they to do? Well, Paul's focus in our section is how the false teaching was impacting men and women in the worship service. He needed to correct them. Certain demeanors and actions were called for because of the distinction between men and women. So here's the major point. If you get lost, there are a ton of details in this text that I'm going to walk through. But if you get lost, here's the main point. Men and women are called to act in a godly way in in the public gathering that reflects their gender. Men and women are called to act in a godly way in the public gathering that reflects their gender. And that's our call as well. So why does this matter, though? What's on the line if we don't? Well, if we don't, according to Paul, the church won't be a pillar, a support for the truth of the gospel. Do you hear what's on the line? Do you want to support the truth of the gospel? Well, then we must listen to his commands here. If you don't care about that, well, then he says you'll stop being a support and a pillar for the truth for the truth. So these verses really matter. So let's walk into the text. First, Paul addresses men in verse 8. You really want to have a Bible in front of you because I'm just going verse by verse here. Paul says, I desire or I want then in every place the men, they should pray lifting their holy hands without anger or without quarreling. 
So he, here he says, I desire this. He's an apostle, though. This is his command, right? This is what I want them to do. Here's what men need to do. And when he says in every place, I think this is in the public service together. As they gather to read the scriptures, to listen to the scriptures, to sing hymns to their God. He says, this is how I want men to act. What should they do? Well, they should pray, and negatively, they should not be angry, and they should not quarrel. We don't know exactly what was happening in this congregation, but it seems certain men were causing some disturbances in public worship. Maybe, if you tie it back to earlier in the book, maybe even because of the false teaching about genealogies, that certain people belonged and others didn't, and so they're quarreling and they're fighting and there's anger, and Paul says, no, I want you to pray. And if you were here last week, pray what? That all people be saved. You need to lift your holy hands and you need to pray. You don't need to come to quarrel or get angry. That is not how men are to behave in the church of God, in the household of God. So men of Emmaus, how are you doing on this front? Do you come to church to show your dependence on God, your love for all people? Or do you show up because you have a few good relationships here and you like to debate things? We come into this house of worship to stand before God, not to argue about trivial things. And that's what Paul is saying here. Don't come in to argue about things. Rather, come in to pray and to worship. If you come to quarrel, you are not helping the church be a pillar for the truth. Verse 9. Paul now turns to women. Verses 9 and 10, actually. He says, Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what, what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So men were having problems in worship, but so were women. Women were dressing immodestly, drawing attention to themselves. Paul says they ought not to braid their hair, wear gold, pearls, or costly attire. You probably wonder how many of us are breaking this command today. What are are we doing here? I I thought the text was clear. The point, though, is contextual. His point is not to ban certain clothing. That could be cultural. But such items at that time flaunted wealth and drew attention to external beauty. So instead, they are not to dress themselves with gold and costly attire, but they are to dress themselves, he says, with good works. To not focus on appearance, but to focus on what they do. As Paul in Ephesians says, you are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So women of Emmaus, I must ask you, how are you doing on this front? Do you dress to impress, to show how much money you have, to get people to notice you? And here's the problem with doing that. Do you dress to bring attention to yourself as you come in here or to the gospel that saves? Even as you get dressed in the morning, are are you trying to get the eyes on you? Or on our God, who has done a wonderful work in Jesus Christ. That's, what, that's the heart of what Paul's getting at. He said, don't come in here to show off. 
come in here because we're worshiping God. So we must ask ourselves, why are we putting on what we put on? Now, what this means in specific, I have no intention of getting into either here or nor any other time. Talk to godly friends. But let me say one thing. There is a way to address that is feminine but not immodest. If you're addressing to flaunt yourself, Paul says this distracts from what we are doing here in the church. This does not help the church be a pillar for the truth. Paul then turns to other commands for women and the reasons for them. Let's first look at the commands in verses 11 through 12. And as you can see, as you look at this text, actually, verses 11 through 12 form a single unit. Notice at the beginning, depending on your translation, he tells them to learn with quietness, and then he ends with learn with quietness at the end of 12. Beginning of 11, learn with quietness. End of 12, learn with quietness. So he says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So first, you should notice what Paul says here. I think these verses come out and they're like, wow, that is just not <laughs> what we're used to hearing in our culture. But if you actually go back to the first century and think about how they would have heard it, the thing that would have stuck out to them, what we think is demeaning, is that actually he calls women to learn. That was countercultural on that day. Some segments of that culture thought it was wrong for women to learn. And Paul says, no, hey, learn. Come to church to learn about the gospel. Paul was eager for them to learn. And Christianity presented a much higher view of women than the surrounding culture. Paul wanted them to be like Mary who sat at the feet of Jesus and learn the scriptures and learn the gospel. And so some things in this text might be countercultural to us, and it wouldn't have been countercultural to them back then. He says, women, come, learn. That's what we do as we sit here. Why, why do we sit down and we hear from the scriptures? That's for all of us to learn. In Ephesus, there was a certain problem with women learning. So he says, women, sit down, learn. Learn the scriptures. Yes, but he also wanted them to learn in a certain way. With quietness and submissiveness. This, again, to us, might sound condescending, but actually, this is just the posture of a good learner. And as we know from other texts in the Bible, the point is not that women ought always to be quiet in worship. 1 Corinthians 11 speaks of women prophesying in the congregation. Quietness here might not mean silence, but a certain demeanor, a receptivity to the gospel message. We don't know exactly the situation, but it may have been that certain women in Ephesus were disrupting the service. So he tells them, be receptive to the message. This is how you are to act as males and females. And in reality, having a quiet demeanor is something that is commanded of all Christians. In 1 Timothy 2, 2, it says, all of you should lead a what? Quiet life. So this command in one sense is for all of us. They're also to learn with submissiveness. And as Christians, we don't believe submission is a dirty word. We are called to submit. We are all called to submit. Our biggest problem is that our great, 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 great grandparents, Adam and Eve, didn't submit themselves to God's good commands in their lives. In fact, our own Savior submitted himself in his flesh to the plan of the Father to save us from our sins. 
So submission here doesn't mean inferiority. It simply means we recognize there is complementarity between males and females. Paul in verse 12 continues to explain what this quietness and submissiveness actually looks like. He says in verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. She is to remain quiet. Paul says this quietness and submissiveness is expressed in learning rather than teaching. A task, as you keep reading in 1 Timothy, that is especially designated to elders. Now, there are a lot of different interpretations of this verse, and I don't want you to think I'm glossing over it. I wrote down seven, and I boiled it down to two, so we can get out of here at some point. So two, two things just to mention. First, so, some think Paul is telling women not to teach false doctrine. He's not telling them don't teach, but don't teach false doctrine. Or maybe that they weren't educated. And so they're not to teach because they're supposed to learn, right? And they need to be educated before they teach. But there were educated women at that time. It's unlikely in Ephesus that there weren't some educated women in that congregation. And secondly, there's a word for false teaching. He doesn't use it here. He uses the normal word for teaching. You also have to think, why does he tell, if this is the case, that he's saying don't teach false teaching, why does he just tell women not to do it? It seems like he tells all people not to spread false teaching. So I don't, I don't think it works that he's talking about false teaching here. Uh, second, some argue this type of authority would be a domineering authority or, or a domineering teaching that he's te talking about. He's not talking about all sort of teaching or all sort of authority, but rather a certain domineering authority. That's where he uses the word exercise authority. I do not permit them to teach or to exercise authority. So maybe he's telling them not that they can't have authority, but don't use it improperly. This is possible. It's possible to interpret that way. But teaching and authority here are actually linked in the grammar. And if teaching is a positive thing, it's more likely that authority is also a positive thing. So as you speak about things and you link them by like an and, usually you're linking two things that are similar. So as scholars have looked at this, they've said, if the teaching is a positive thing and it's not false teaching, then likely the exercising authority is a positive thing as well. So I, I personally am not convinced by those other interpretations. I think Paul is saying, I don't, I don't think Paul is saying that women can't teach at all, but rather he is saying there's a certain relationship that should be reflected in the church. Teaching, as I said, is especially related to the office of elder. So Paul seems to be implying that the office of elder is reserved for men and that women, and really all of us, are to learn in a way that is proper. So at Emmaus, we obey this verse and these verses by only having qualified men as elders and pastors. But let me also say this. We want to be careful to not over-apply this. This does not mean that women were forbidden to speak in church. Even up front, as I already mentioned, 1 Corinthians 11 says women were prophesying in the congregation. Nor does this mean that women can't come to men or the elders if you think we are reading the Bible badly. We have the example of Priscilla who takes Apollos, the teacher, aside and says, you got it all wrong. 
So while this verse exists, we want to be careful that we don't say, okay, we, 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 do, we don't want to come up to this line, so we need to forbid everything. No, we need to take the whole counsel of God and recognize that he is speaking into this situation. He's giving them an order in the church, but we don't want to overapply it. We should pray as Emmaus that we would be so well served by our sisters in this church. You are welcome to come to us and say, hey, I think you got that wrong. And I'm sure many of you will come to me after this sermon and say that. And you are welcome to say that. Now that Paul has given his commands, we're actually not through the hardest stuff yet, believe it or not. Now that Paul has given his commands, he gives two reasons. Why? Like, <laughs> this is the, the big question. Paul knows, like, why are you saying this? Why, why do you have this command for us? Why does it need to be that way? Well, he gives us two reasons in verses 13 and 14. This is why are women to learn quietly and not to teach and not to exercise authority. The first reason is found in verse 13. Paul says, Adam was formed first and then Eve. Now many egalitarians come to this command not to teach and this specific reason and say, hey, there is false teaching going on in Ephesus. There is the cult of Artemis. There was something going on here. And so this can't be, it, it has to be contextual to that time. But I just want you to note what he grounds it in, what he, he gives the reason for, it's in created order. He doesn't ground it in, oh, there's something going on in Ephesus. He grounds it in, Adam was formed first and then Eve. Paul says there's an order to creation that should be reflected in the church. Genesis tells us that Adam was created first. He names and even protects Eve. She is created to nurture, to help, and to support Adam. And when God saw Adam by himself, this masculine man standing there naked, right? He said, yeah, yeah this is not good. If you, actually, if you actually look at Genesis 1 and 2, no, I'm serious. Look at it. It keeps on, God keeps on saying, this is good. This is really good. This is really good. And he creates man. And he looks at him. And he's like, not, not good. <laughs> not, not good. Not good that he's alone. And he says, we need someone to compliment him. We need someone to come alongside him. Complementarity simply means a relationship where two or more different things improve or emphasize one another's qualities. That is, I really want you to get that. I'm going through all these different ways of interpreting this, but I want you to get the beauty of complementarity. Let me say that again. Complementarity simply means a relationship where two or more different things improve or emphasize one another's qualities. If you look at Genesis 1 through 2, God made things in pairs. Heaven and earth, day and night, sea and sky, fruits and vegetables, sweet things and salty things, land animals and sea animals, and male and female. So just, just imagine with me if the earth were entirely ocean. No land. No, you have land to complement the sea. Or imagine with me, with me, maybe if you live in Alaska, you know about this, if it was all, only always day or only always night. Notice there's a complement of day and night. Or imagine with me if you could only taste salty things and you couldn't taste sweet things or you couldn't, even better, combine them right? Or they complement one another. Imagine with me if the world was made up of only men or only women. It would be awful, right? Only men or only women. We, we are to complement one another. God said that's not good. 
Contrast is fundamental to what we find beautiful. Contrast is fundamental to what we find beautiful. But contrast is not competition. It's actually brought into a beautiful union. We are distinct by design, and we are to work together in advancing Christ's kingdom. And if men do it all alone, it's not good. If, men, or if women do it all alone, it's not good. He wants us to come together. And while this sounds good, maybe for some of you, these verses still trouble you. Adam was formed first and then Eve, so therefore he's to have this certain role. So let me just address a few things I don't think this text is saying, or a few considerations. First, I don't think this text is making a universal, universal statement about how men and women are to interact. Let me say that again. I don't think this text is saying or making a universal statement about how men and women are to interact. He is not talking about those in business or in government. The scriptures don't critique Lydia and Acts or Deborah in her for national leadership. Rather, he is speaking to certain covenantal relationships in the church, and I would argue this also applies to the marriage relationship based on Ephesians 5. So in certain covenantal relationships, he's saying this is how I want you to interact. I would be personally very careful to not extend that to other spheres. Because I think we need to be clear where the scriptures are clear, and they are clear on these two spheres. Okay? So be careful how far you extend this. Second, Paul is not saying men are good teachers and leaders and women are not. He's not saying that. I'm sure there are many women in this church who are more gifted at teaching and leading than many of the men in this room. This is not about gifting. This is about created order. Third, be careful not to import worldly definitions of leadership into this text. If you're offended that men are allowed to be elders and pastors, maybe we need to also examine the scriptures and redefine what we think leadership is. How does Jesus define leadership? It's service. It's washing people's feet. And so if you're offended by this, I think you have a certain view of leadership that they get all the power and privileges. That's not, that's not in the Bible. Leadership is where you lay your life down on behalf of others. Overall, Paul's point is that the different roles in the church are rooted in nature, in who we are, in created order. The point is complementarity is God's idea. And it's good. And it's good for us and for our delight. The second reason Paul says women should not teach or exercise authority is given in verse 14. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Wow, it only gets worse, doesn't it? Every verse. It's just like, Paul never stops, right? So, I mean, a very plain reading of this is that Paul is saying women are more gullible. That if I said, oh my gosh, there's a bird in the back of the theater, all the women would look and all the men would keep staring at me. Yeah, like you read it and it almost seems like that's what he's saying. I don't think that's what he's saying. I don't think that could be the case. I don't see anything in the scriptures that, that support that women are more liable to temptation than men. So, like, if we had another verse that maybe hinted at that, okay, maybe we need to go down that path and talk about that. I just don't see another verse. So, if that's the case, I want to look at this verse and say, maybe he's getting at something else here. And I really, 
I really don't think this is the case because if you say that, I really think you're criticizing God because he then made women more liable to temptation. Like, do you see what I'm getting at? Like, that, that's a weird way for God to like, okay, I'm going to make men, they're going to be strong, they're going to be able to stand up, and there's the woman, she's going to fall. Now, I, I think we have some issues if we go down that path. Others say this text means that men and women are different, so they're liable to different temptations. Men who are generally more aggressive and assertive and tempted to harshness, while women are generally more sensitive and can read a room better. And this matters because women might be more tempted to doctrinal deception for relational purposes. A lot of people have that view of this text. Possible, it seems pretty close to that first view that I said, though. So I, I don't take that view either. But some people do, and I think it's a, it's, it is an interpretation out there. My view is that Paul gives the positive in verse 13 and the negative in verse 14. Here's the order of things, verse 13, right? Adam was created first, then Eve. And here's what happens if it's ignored, verse 14. Adam was supposed to protect his wife, but he abdicated his responsibility. He stood by silently, and she was deceived by the serpent, and therefore fell. Eve was deceived because Adam didn't do his job. So he says, Eve was deceived. So men in the congregation, step up. This is what happens when the order of creation is reversed. This is what happens when you neglect your duty. When God came to them after they ate the fruit, Eve ate it first, right? That's what Genesis says. But it, she gave it to her husband who is with her. And when God comes to him, he looks at Adam and he says, what have you done? He doesn't even say, what have you all, y'all done? He says, what have you done, Adam? Adam didn't protect his wife, so she was deceived. And he said, Adam, this is your fault. You were standing beside her. The order was reversed. You should have been protecting her against the serpent. And you didn't do your job. As Lig Duncan said, the whole passage in Genesis reeks of role reversal. Animal over man, woman over man, man over God, man passive when he should have been active, woman active when she should have been passive. In the same way, Paul says, if men abdicate their roles in the church, then the church will be left open to temptation. And it won't be a pillar for the truth. The argument, therefore, is a call for men to stand up and fulfill your responsibilities. Emmaus, pray for your elders that we would be those who protect the church, that we would be guardians of this congregation, for if we don't and this church comes under, under attack, we will be held responsible. Finally, in verse 15, Paul gives a concession. One more hard verse. It says, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, with self-control or good sense, as some translations say. So at this point, I want to again say, come on, Paul, give me a break. <laughs> this is a verse that seminary professors love to torment their students with to show them how much they need the teacher, right? You just bring out this verse and like, you have no idea what that means, right? So what does this verse mean? Let me knock down a few things that it can't mean. 
it can't mean that you are saved by giving birth. It can't mean you are saved by giving birth. Why? Because that would get it, go against the clear teaching of salvation by faith alone. <laughs> You're not saved by giving birth. You're saved by faith alone. It would also put men in a very precarious situation. <laughs> it also, I don't think, can mean that women will be safe. So saved can mean maybe you're, you're safe in childbearing. For we know, especially throughout history, many women have died in the act of giving birth to children. Finally, I don't think, although some people argue this, I don't think personally this is what it means, that they will be saved through the childbearing of Jesus, that women will be saved through the coming of Jesus. This is not, I don't think, in reference to a child, but to the act of giving birth. So to be saved through childbearing, what does that mean? I think he's giving an illustration. Salvation can simply mean striving for obedience, and childbearing is unique to, a way, to the way a woman embraces her femininity. What is the one thing that women can do that men can't? Well, there's many things, but give birth. <laughs> there's many, right? You, you, we can't give birth. So I think what Paul is saying is women can continue in godliness by accepting their God-given role. That doesn't mean you have to give birth. That just means an ex it, it is an expression of your femininity, right? So women will be saved by continuing in, in following the path that God has give the, given them as females. The point of this passage is that women and men need to move forward by delighting in their design. Giving birth to children is just one example amongst many that he could give. You should delight in your design, not despise it. God's plan is good, and men and women will be saved by accepting their gender and their complementary roles. So, Maeus, how are you doing? I realize this can be a really hard text, and I, I, I really wish I could hear what you're thinking. If you're new, you might think we're crazy, that we're stuck in 1940s. But we as a church believe that we are called to teach what God says, not what we want him to say. If you come to this church, you're going to get what the scriptures say. So we all need to ask ourselves, how do you react to a text like this? What is your natural inclination towards a text like this? Let me just go through some options. If you read this and you know what it says and you reject it and just say, I just don't like that. I just don't like that. I know what it says. It seems clear to me, but I don't like it. I think you have to ask yourself, who is the authority in your life? Is it you or is it God? Is it God's words or is it your thoughts about God? Have you created a God in your own image? Does your God ever disagree with you? And if he doesn't, then I think you're worshiping yourself not the God of the scriptures. If you're prone to reinterpret it, I would ask if you do so because you think the scriptures lead that way or because you're embarrassed by this text. And if you're embarrassed by it, what other of God's commands are you embarrassed by? And at what point will you stop letting your feelings of what you're embarrassed by determine what the scriptures say? If you're prone to embrace this, but downplay it, 
Have you asked yourself whether you truly think God is good and gives us good commands? For if he does, then you don't have to be ashamed of this. You can actually lean into it. Do you delight in your design? Do you really believe God's commands are for your flourishing and for your happiness? So maybe you're one of those who embraces it, but you don't like to talk about it. But God's commands are for our good. Lean into this. Maybe some of you here overapply this text. You build a fence around what women can do so widely so that we don't get too close to that line. Maybe you need to read the whole counsel of God and do more celebration of women in ministry and how God uses them. My guess is that most people, many people in this room are complementarians. So let me challenge you directly. Is your complementarity really complementarity? Or is it more patriarchy? Where men do everything and you just say, well, we're complementarians. So we have to ask, are we really complementing each other? Or do we just give that idea lip service? When people walk in this church, do they see the complementarity of men and women here? And if not, we have some work to do. We should not be those who reject it. We should not be those who reinterpret it. We should not be those who embrace it but downplay it. We should not be those who overapply it. We should be those who celebrate this, advocate for it, and joyfully apply it to our situations. We should delight in our design. One of my biggest fears in trying to approach this text with nuance is that I didn't communicate the beauty of complementarity. But complementarity is beautiful because in it, as I said, we highlight each other's qualities. There is a fit, a mutual enhancement, a beautiful difference at the heart of what God has made. Complementarity is hardwired into creation. Just think of complementarity with food. It's a silly example. But just think of complementarity with food. What would chips be without salsa? <laughs> Terrible. What would macaroni be without cheese? What would biscuits be without gravy? So weird, this is a weird example. Next one. What would Brussels sprouts be without bacon? Maybe gross either way, but I think it's good. Brussels sprouts with bacon. I mean, Brussels sprouts are bad, and you add bacon, and it's like suddenly it's, they're both good. Amazing. In the same way, God made us male and female to enhance one another, to fit together like lock and key. This is good and this is beautiful. For Amaze Church, this is how this text has shaped our practices. And if you want to read something that I think is really good on this, just go to the Village Church in Texas. Just Google it and find their, their, their document on men and women in the church. I think it's a really helpful three-page, two-and-a-half-page document. It just outlines what they do in the church in light of texts like this. So if you want to read more on this, I just encourage you to read that. It's a very short read, but I think it's really balanced and helpful. We desire to to articulate and embody a theology, a vision of complementarity where men and women are absolutely equal in essence, dignity and value, and are complementary by design. We celebrate all people, including women in ministry. All Christians are charged with the Great Commission. All Christians are called to minister in the church. All Christians are called to teach in some sense. The Bible depicts a vision of men and women laboring alongside one another in the world and the church for the sake of the kingdom. As one of our members pointed out to me this week, the mission of God does not go forward without women. 
Did you hear what I said? The mission of God does not go forward without women. We are indispensable allies to one another. Emmaus, every member of Emmaus is indispensable to the ministry of the church. Women are not second-class citizens here. Because of that, we expect, and this is key, I didn't say a lot about this because I had so much to say, but because of that, we expect the primary relationship between men and women in the church to be that of brotherly and sisterly love. The primary relationship you should have is brotherly and sisterly love. We are a family, and that is how we are to relate to one another. And while we affirm equal involvement in the church and between men and women, we don't advocate for interchangeable involvement. Though equal, we are also complementary. The Bible reserves the office of elder and pastor to qualified men, not just men in general, to qualified men. They are called to lead the church, preach, protect, pray, and equip the saints for the work of the ministry. We have confidence knowing that God's plan for us is good and it is fitting. While we might be made fun of for this belief, while, we might be made, while people might look at us and say, you're way behind the times, we trust that God's design is for our delight. And as Christians, we recognize that all of us, not just the culture out there, all of us have failed in properly carrying this out. Adam failed in his task and Eve was deceived. So we too have failed in treating one another properly. But a new Adam has come. And this new Adam was also in a garden. He was in a garden and he looked at the father and he said, I will always do your will. I will go straight to the cross to what? To purchase a bride. I will lay down my life on behalf of my bride so that she might be completely pure. Rather than standing by passively and saying, I'm not going to do this. He actively went to the cross on our behalf. Jesus is our only hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ and the gift of the Spirit who dwells within us and causes us to love your commands. Oh God, we recognize that you are the essence of goodness. You are the essence of beauty. And we want to follow you in every area of our life. So would you give us the strength to do so? Father, we recognize we haven't done so. And so we need the forgiveness that is in Jesus Christ. So even as we come to this table now, we claim the blood and the body of the Son on our behalf. Thank you that he washes away all of our sin. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.